are something like record flows right now into what are called alts, alternative investments, according to several reports that I've read. And there's a lot of danger there, folks. I've said this before, and I'll probably say it many, many times again. An alternative investment is not publicly traded. In other words, it's not traded every day on the market, so you don't know what the price is. So if you buy something, and I'll just use a wild number here, it could be anything, for $100 a share, uh, or you put 10000 or $100,000 into an alternative investment, any price you see on a statement from the company into which you invested the money isn't real. You don't know what something is worth until you go to sell it on the open market. There are something like record flows right now into what are called alts. Once more unto the breach, dear friends. Else fill the wall up with our English dead. Uh, this is Jake McClure, and on the line with me I have... Jeff McClure. Yes, together we are bald. We didn't give yes. that properly give that disclosure last, last hour, so uh, be it, though it be not written down, let it be remembered that we are bald. Let it be said. Yes. Indeed. Uh, Let this, it be said. This is the Personal Wealth Coach, and we're going to continue our conversation from last hour about stuff, the world of finance and so on. We haven't really touched on personal finance at all. We've still got so much new stuff on the big, big picture. We have another question. We have two more questions. One of them you didn't get. Oh. Well, the other question that I did get, a question that uh, it's an opinion piece in the Wall Street Journal, and his question is, um, does PwC think, that's personal wealth coach, think 2% is the new normal? And if so, what are the implications? And uh, the article in question is, welcome to the full employment recession. And there's a circled portion that says a growth rate of around 2% a year or less than half the rate of the 1960s appears to be the new normal for the U.S. economy. Despite the robust labor market, the country remains stuck in a long cycle of slowing growth. I, I can... I, I, there, let me let me give you some really quick and easy, really really easy economic principles. I know that sounds like an oxymoron. Easy economic principle doesn't usually go together. Economies grow or shrink based on two things, and it's not supply and demand. That's something that comes in later. It's demographics, how many people are there, what age, and productivity. Yes. Period. If you look at a country like Denmark or Japan, where the GDP is actually growing, their population is shrinking. They have less people this year than they did the year before and less people than they did a decade ago. But their economies are doing well. And when you look at each individual, each end of the per capita GDP is growing at a much higher rate than the GDP. Per capita meaning each individual. Their population is shrinking, and yet their economy is still growing. That's some weird stuff right there. If our economy is shrinking and our GDP is growing, that's more growth than we would be able to measure against from a decade ago. But I'm going to get even more down to the down and dirty. If, if you have a population that's completely uneducated, that's getting paid pennies an hour, and you come into that population and you educate them, and you give them jobs producing something that's worth nickels an hour, you've just had a exponential growth rate. And I think we can all say, oh yeah, well that makes sense. I mean, if you have a, an economy that's based on um, most of the people using their hands literally in the mud, 
and then moving forward to a different kind of mud, silicon, that's being used to produce something else. So you can see an exponential growth curve there, that these are going to make a lot more money than what than the rice that they were growing or, or the clay that they were making into pots. Um, this is very, very true stuff. Once you've reached a certain level of prosperity, a couple of things change. This, this isn't maybe they change. This is throughout human history and before. Once you reach a certain level of prosperity, you stop having as many babies. There's all kinds of theories and hypotheses as to why that is. Nobody knows why that is. You can have an opinion, but it's impossible to prove it. We do know that the more prosperous you are, the less likely you are to have lots of babies. So populations start to shrink when they start getting wealthy. And it also means that if you have fewer of available people in the workforce, you need to increase your productivity and you're going to hire more of the people that are available to hire. So in this, in this article, it says, despite the robust labor market, the country seems stock, stuck in a long cycle of slowing growth. It's partially because of the labor market. We're going to be hiring as many people as we can, and they're going to be better educated than they were a generation ago. They're also almost by definition wealthier than they were a generation ago, which means their ability to grow their wealth exponentially is lower. They get a raise every year, but it's not the difference between coming out of the mud and going into a, an electronics lab. The other thing is, and and... It's important to recognize this. When we talk about GDP growth of 2%, and, and I'd like to, I could spend an, an entire two hours on this issue. When we measure GDP, it is inaccurate. Yes. Fundamentally inaccurate. We've talked about that before. GDP is growing a lot faster than what is reported when you see the GDP numbers come out from the government. Um, There's a better number for we, it. We, we used to use called gross national product, which was about the profits of the corporations, and it didn't include things like the borrowing of the government as part of the growth. <laughs> but all that aside, um, is is two two per, by the current measurement, we were running around two percent before the pandemic. Uh, President Trump said we could get it to four percent by doing the things he wanted to do, cutting taxes and, and we, doing a series of things. We and did we have didn't, a quarter of that, but it was annualized. Yeah, but, that means we, the, for the year, it wasn't up there. Right, but for the year, it was still about 2%. And that is not abnormal. One of the big issues we have is the baby boomers are retiring. We have a lot of retirees. They're not very productive in the in industry. The retirees are, are negative. Um, the reality is the economy is growing is probably a long-term growth in reality of about 3% above inflation. Right. And if inflation runs about 2.5%, what you're really seeing from a regular down-in-the-dirt perspective is 5.5% growth a year. I realize inflation needs to be subtracted from that for it to be accurate, but our sense of growth will probably run along about 5% a year into the future for some time. And there's a reason for that. We have a very large, mature economy. When something gets to a certain size, it grows slower. That's just the law of diminishing returns, just like the fact that we need to do commercials. Right. This is part of the law of diminishing yeah. returns. I'm going to add one final piece there. Barring a new and massive technology. So 
the last decade, we had kind of smartphone technology and app creation and big data hit the scene. So we had some exponential growth in parts of our economy. We're going to continue to see that as long as we promote innovation. But it's not demographics-based anymore. We're shrinking. It's Mm productivity-based. So when we see a big productivity increase, then we can see a boost in GDP. And that means new technologies. Where before it was just finding new markets or finding new markets for labor. We don't have that as easily anymore. Robotics might increase productivity drastically, and we might see a big jump in in growth there, but we're not as hungry as we used to be. And that's the whole thing about growth rate. If you're already wealthy and you're fully employed, you're not as likely to burn the midnight oil on the new products. Well, I was going to touch on something I think is important. There's a couple of things going on, Um, three areas for investors to be aware of. There are something like record flows right now into what are called alts, alternative investments, according to several reports that I've read. And there's a lot of danger there, folks. I've said this before, and I'll probably say it many, many times again. An alternative investment is not publicly traded. In other words, it's not traded every day on the market, so you don't know what the price is. So if you buy something, and I'll just use a wild number here, it could be anything, for $100 a share, uh, or you put $10,000 or $100,000 into an alternative investment, any price you see on a statement from the company into which you invested the money isn't real. You don't know what something is worth until you go to sell it on the open market. And in many cases, and I, I saw an advertisement for real estate with a very healthy looking um, uh, yield. They, they were trying to actually, they were trying to convince me or us that we should offer it to our clients. And it looked very, very good. And if you looked at the uh, the, the 3.2% that it was paying as a, as a yield and the price doesn't fluctuate, what more can you ask for? Until you read the fine print and you realize that they may or may not redeem shares when you need the money. Um, they may redeem part of your shares when they need the, if you need the money, uh, but they make no guarantee to that effect. And they don't tell you how long it's going to be before they liquidate the real estate. And that all looked really good. I'm going to tell you something straight up. I went and looked at a low-cost index mutual fund to, to be unnamed in real estate. And I looked at its yield. It is publicly traded. It is uh, something you can see the price of every day. And liquidity is very, very high. But you see the price go up and down, which is what real estate really does. It had a higher yield than the offering that was being touted to me that we should be offering our clients. So uh, I think he was going in to talk about how alts, we don't really know what alts are worth at any given moment. <laughs> so we're seeing a lot of money because the market is down and people don't like to see market fluctuations. They would rather have them hid. Hidden. I oh, Hidden. Over the years, and I have was a broker for 25 years before I started into the before we started into the investment advisory side, the fiduciary side of things. So that gives me 40 years of experience. And I have seen a lot of people lose a lot of money in non-traded alternative investments. It takes them years to realize they've lost the money in many cases, but I've seen a lot of people lose a lot of money. And I'll be very frank and say I have yet to see somebody make a lot of money in an alternative investment. Now, they, it um, may have happened someplace and I missed it. I've, I've seen and, some, but it's generally because they sell it to somebody else who 
heard about the old event. Yeah, yeah. It's, and then loses the money. Right. Um, greater fool theory. That doesn't work real well. There's another couple of things that are going on. Scams are multiplying as they always do in down markets where people will promise you some ridiculous yield. Anytime that somebody says we have a safe investment, it's quite secure, it's nothing to worry about, but it is paying more than a certificate of deposit at the bank or a treasury security of similar maturity. In other words, you get out around two years and the treasury securities, a United States treasury note at two and three years is paying more than 3% per year right now. Okay. And they're completely secure. So if you really want to lock in a good return for the next two or three years, and you don't want to take any risk. Now, admittedly, if you try to sell it in the two or three year period, the price may be higher or lower because of interest rates, but you will be quite comfortable that you're going to get your money back. And I just saw a headline article in the Wall Street Journal. Money is pouring into fixed deferred and two and three year fixed deferred annuities. The two and three year fixed deferred annuities, this is what's fascinating, are paying the same thing that treasury notes are paying. But the two and three year fixed deferred annuities don't have have salesmen who get commissions. If you put your money into a fixed deferred annuity, admittedly, shorter term is a lot safer than longer term. But if you put it in there for an extended period of time or any period of time, it is exactly as safe as the insurance company is. If that insurance company, which is a corporation, goes out of business, you may not get all of your money back. You and It may take you a long time to get part of it back. There is no FDIC insurance on, and matter of fact, the article irritated me in the Wall Street Journal that I saw because it said they're similar to CDs. They're not. (laughs) They're not because the CD at a bank up to $250,000 is backed by by the FDIC, which at least is inferredly backed by the federal government, which means it's safe. Uh, if you put your money in and you say, well, what's the chances of an insurance company going under? What's the chances of a bank going under? Insurance companies do go out of business. And I've been at this long enough to remember when annuity insurance companies that were offering high interest rates were dropping uh, frequently. It made the headlines on a regular basis. Why? Because long ago, interest rates were rising and their value of their bond portfolios were falling and people were bailing out of annuities to go put their money where there was a higher interest rate. And when they did, they liquidated and the in, the annuity companies, the insurance companies had to liquidate bond portfolios that were worth a lot less than they paid for them. Will that happen again? I don't know, but it can happen. Just like we had a spate of bank failures a couple of times since I've been observing this thing. The difference with the, between the annuity company failures and the bank failures is with the bank failures, the FDIC stepped in and gave you your money back. With the annuity company failures, sometimes you got your money back after a long time, and sometimes you got part of it back after a long, long time. Now, now, but it wasn't a pretty picture. We'll come in right now because it's important. We need to be balanced on this to say okay, there are good reasons to have a fixed annuity or to have an annuity period. This is not a destroy all annuities concept. Mm-hmm. What, he, what you are talking about, I believe, is, is a fundamental fact that often they're lumped in at the low risk kind of area like a bank is, and it's simply not the case. You need to understand the risk. There's less risk 
on really well-funded insurance companies than there is on less-funded insurance companies. These are nuances that you need to be aware of when you approach an annuity versus a bank. Let me make a comment here based on my experience. I, when I was a broker, sold annuities and offered term life insurance and did the things that brokers do, which now call themselves financial advisors, but we just called ourselves brokers back then. There were at least two different companies that I was uh, unpleasantly associated with in that I, as a broker, offered their products for sale who were extremely highly rated. They had the highest, some among the highest rating by the rating services. They were extremely well-funded. In both cases, another company bought those companies and in less than 30 days, they went from the highest rating to receivership. The reason for that is these companies were purchased for their asset base mm-hmm. and stripped of those asset bases under new ownership. And now they had all the assets and they could dump the remainder. And that's, it, it's a long tradition insurance for that to happen. And, you know, the argument by an insurance agent is, well, the state insurance regulators won't let that happen. Baloney. They, they, they do, and they have. And, and so that's one of the risks associated with insurance products. And most people need insurance. We have to lay that out. If, if you've never had life insurance in your life, then you were either independently wealthy or you didn't have people that you needed to take care of or chose to take care of. It's a, it, it can be expensive. It can be inexpensive. There's a lot of things about insurance that are often needed. Understanding the risks of the things that you're using to avoid risks is pretty important. Now, let me, let me put a little caveat in here. It was interesting that as I've watched these insurance company failures over the years, the life insurance side of those companies, when it came time to pay out death benefits, the state insurance commissioner's did indeed pay out the full death benefit. It, it was the annuity, fixed annuity owners who lost money. I, I, I have a, a, a quick throw in here. One of sure. your, your sayings that you have told me my whole life about walking down a path and seeing a snake in the path and you reach down to pick up a, sna- a stick to hit the snake with and the snake wasn't actually a snake. It was just a stick but the stick you picked up was a snake and it bit you. Right. Um, When you're dealing with a risk, snake in the path, and you're preparing for that risk, there are some things you can do that are easy. Is the stick I'm picking up really a stick? That's the easy stuff. The hard stuff is when there's a stack of sticks being told to you by the Wall Street Journal, and one of those sticks is a snake. Sure. That's that's what we're talking about. This is the the answer to to that really if somebody's trying to sell you something with a with a three percent let's just say yield on it for three years do your research you can go to treasurydirect.gov and right now buy a three-year treasury note that is yielding over three percent absolutely guaranteed absolutely safe so just do your research before you do anything. And of course, there are out-and-out scams going on too. And anytime somebody is offering you a higher rate of return than you can get from a treasury security or a CD, you are taking some risk and it's important to know what risk it is you're taking. That's my soapbox. All right. Good soapbox for the day. It's good stuff. One of the other things that's going on that people are not probably paying a great deal of attention to the Chinese economy in the second quarter on an annualized basis grew four tenths of 1%. Well, what does that mean? 
it squeezed out used, some growth. It this quarter it very well may be negative. Um, that is the lowest quarter in I don't know how long. Since it's been 2020, the first quarter or of 2020, they had negative. It was the pandemic shutdown, and everybody had negative that quarter, including them. And that was the first time mm-hmm. they had it since like the 1960s. So there's an interesting thing going on. We were a lot of people very recently were very, very concerned. There was a lot of news print and talk on the radio and television about the Chinese economy overtaking the United States economy and the Chinese buying everything and the Chinese dominating the world. And we compared that to the Japanese who were going to do the same thing. And those of you who remember back to the future, the the forecast was that by now we would all be needing to speak Japan in the United States if we wanted to stay in business. And obviously that it didn't happen. And it's not going to happen with China either. Um, China is like Russia grasping before they fall and they're pushing as hard as they can push and it's a not unreasonable thing demographics in those two countries are not favorable to them being monstrous threats forever uh so one of the things not to worry about by the way is china taking over the world i know that sounds very contrary to what you've heard and seen for a long time we're not saying they're not a threat to our economy we're not saying any of that but the long-term demographics trend and innovations trend for China means that they will probably not keep up with us long-term. And, and there are not a lot of people trying to get into China for some reason to live there. Uh, I don't know why, but, but there's a lot of people trying to get out of China to live somewhere else, whereas we have the opposite problem. I do think, from I'll say something that's sort of semi, it's not Democrat or Republican, it's just real, we do need to take a really close, hard look at immigration policy and allow quality people into the United States to fill the jobs that are sitting there. Because we have still have a, a near record number of job openings in the United States we can't fill. And our economy, our Social Security system, our Medicare system, we all depend on there being people working, paying taxes to make all this stuff work. And we want to re, we want to innovate and grow in our economy. We basically need to do what was done a hundred years ago. A hundred years ago, uh, we basically we said we set some policies and said we will allow a lot of Eastern Europeans into the country, who are now their descendants are here, multi generations, and they're doing really really well. We really haven't seriously updated our immigration policy since then, and we need to have. We just have a lot of jobs that are going unfilled, particularly at the low end of the yeah. spectrum. And, and I can say this with no qualms. This is something both the Democrats and the Republicans agree on. They don't agree on the individual parts of it, that the immigration laws need to be reformed. Yes. Um, and having some logic in there is, again, both sides can agree on that. If both sides can agree it needs to be reformed, some degree of um, negotiation is possible there. Well, uh, I, I, I'm going to drop in kind of a segue issue thing that's on the same concept. Mm-hmm. We were talking about this earlier. We had a question from Inquisitor John about the 2% growth rate and whether that's normal and so on and productivity. And then we had another question later about the possible impact of a railway freight strike uh, in the United States and how that's been delayed at least for 60 days and maybe forever. The big thing that the unions in this want, it sounds like I'm changing the subject. It's very much the same concept. The unions are upset because not that long ago, 
the regulations at the corporate level changed from a mandatory three people working on a freight train to two people working on a freight train. Computers have come along. They're making it a lot easier to do much of the stuff remotely. But they say, hey, we still need two people involved here. So the unions are upset because they laid off a lot of people back then. Then profits jumped for the freight companies because, number one, demand jumped. And number two, they had less employees to pay. So the the employees say, hey, we want a raise. And right on top of that, they're saying, and you're considering this next rule to go from two employees per train to one because the technology is getting better. So we don't like that. We're going to strike. This is when the president stepped in and said, hey, you have to put that off. Go to this board. You've got 60 days. Figure this out. It may actually get stopped at that point. We don't know. What I'm coming to is that the productivity increase, we were just talking about well-marked highways for self-driving vehicles. Well, train tracks are hard to swerve off of. If you've got your speed set well, you don't really have to... Computers are pretty good at that kind of self-navigation if there's limited results on where you can turn and so on. So eventually, there's not going to be anybody on those railway cars. It's going to be all computer. There may be some robots to fix minor issues, and they may cause the trains to divert and so on. But that's definitely going to happen. This strike is a direct result of technology. And you look pregnant with thought. Please well, have your labor. Uh, until we get computers driving trains, which, by the way, is being heartily resisted by a lot of folks. Yeah. I kind of agree with the unions on this point. And, the, you know, an airliner that flies across the country, mm-hmm. theoretically, can easily fly with one pilot. Right. Oh, absolutely. Except from time to it time, could, pilots could, do could things. could easily fly with no people. With no points, well, except no, that, it, no, you know, with the technology we ha- we could do it, but it's the it's the emergency scenarios where you need people, and it's a double emergency that needs two. So we important. still don't we still don't have computers that can taxi aircraft to the appropriate place and can pull it out onto the runway appropriately for takeoff. Once it gets once it starts its takeoff roll, the autopilot will do a nice job and can literally take it all the way to landing at the I, other end. I, Unless I, I will tell you that they, that technology exists and it's in use in certain private air ca- aircraft. It, However, it's not with, available at the level that's been tested for commercial air flights. Right. Until trains get to the point where they truly have everything working perfectly, having one person in there, there have been some very serious train accidents in the past. And certainly there have been aircraft accidents because the pilot had a heart attack or Uh the the engineer had a heart attack. Uh, Where in some commuter trains, by the way, there's only one person on the train. A lot of commuter trains. Well, the commuter train is a different thing. Yeah. Uh, And and that one person having a heart attack or getting distracted or whatever wound up with a bunch of people dead. So, so uh, I think two is not a bad deal. Well, the thing is, this is the debate. And at some point, it will be computerized. And the debate right. will continue even after that. This is John Henry. This is the old story about technology cre- uh, replacing humans. And we're, we're out, out of time. time. We're going to see a lot of stuff like that. As productivity increases, it's because less people are doing it. And sometimes that means some people get pulled out of the workforce involuntarily. That's not good for them. 
It may be good for everyone, but we need a balance there. And we're out of time. And we're about out of time. This is the Personal Wealth Coach with Jeff and Jake. McClure. Uh, this is the Personal Wealth Coach, and we do make uh, other statements than really bad puns about songs. Uh, but uh, today, that's how we're starting our episode. Yeah. <clears throat> Uh, we are uh, a, a finance program, as you would probably guess from the personal wealth coach being our title. The personal wealth coach is not just the title of the program. It's also the name of an SEC registered investment advisory firm. All right. Well, does that mean that the SEC likes us? What would you say to that, sir? I would say that the SEC is a professionally dislikes almost everyone. Right. That is no implication of the SEC's approval just because we're registered with them. Why is the radio program and the firm named the same thing? Because we have to give this disclosure no matter what it is, and it's less disclosurable. It takes less time to do if it's just the same name. So we've been doing this program here uh, on, this st- in, on this station, 1400 AM in Temple, since 1996. We've been doing this a long time, and we haven't been paid for it ever. Uh, we also have not ever paid for it. So we've been doing this a long, long time, and the whole idea is education. We do advertise as a firm for on the studio, uh, on the channel, for this radio program. We don't actually advertise for our firm. We're advertising for the radio program. So what we're saying is that this is educational, and we do occasionally get business from it, but our purpose here is truly education. That being said, it's not advice. Advice would be if I knew who you were, if the other bald guy, Jeff, knew who you were, and we were able to have a private conversation with you about things in your best interest versus broadcasting to everyone. So we're going to be talking about education, which is why we do the program to begin with. So those two disclosures are really one. And having said that, do you deem to tell us another Disclosure? Yes. The information we present on this educational radio program has been obtained from sources we deem to be reliable, but we make no warranty or guarantee as to the accuracy or completeness of said information. And he really can't get through the week without that. I think uh, if you would like to talk to us off the air, we actually give individually, uh, individually crafted and customized advice based on what people are trying to achieve that's generally and portfolio management and portfolio management. And that's generally for people with higher net worths, but we make exceptions occasionally. Um, and so you can contact us locally voicemail available during the weekend, but actual real live people, no phone tree during the week at two, five, four, nine, four, seven, 11, 11. You can reach that line tool free at one, eight hundred nine, one, four, seven, five, two, six. That's eight hundred nine, fourteen plan. And I think it's important to note that we're an independent fiduciary firm. We don't work for a corporation. We only work for our clients. Right. Exactly. Uh, you can go to our webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com or tpwc.com. There's a contact form. You can use emails, Jeff or Jake at tpwc.com. There are uh, recordings of the radio program going back years, newsletters going back decades, uh, and you can find us wherever podcasts are given um, thank you very much for listening on a nice Saturday morning. And until next week, this has been The Personal Wealth Coach.